Well, I welcome you here this morning. My name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LAFC. And uh, if you are new, uh, we're in the midst of a series where basically we're addressing the difficult things in life. Relationships, things that happen around us that cause emotional trauma and, and difficulty. So we, we've looked at things that where uh, basically there's conflict, where there's issues of forgiveness that have to come into play. We've looked at stress. We've looked at anxiety and worry. Yes, even depression. And one of the more difficult subjects is talking about abuse and harm that, that can come to us from other people. These are not easy subjects to address. They are not. And they touch some people very deeply. And so as we've gone through it, one of the things we keep wanting to uh, keep addressing is that when we're at our worst places, when, we're, when stress or anxiety or depression or relational conflict uh, come about in our lives, it's very easy in those times to feel like God left you. It's very easy to feel in those times that God's not hearing your prayers. It's very easy also in those times to suggest that God doesn't exist. Why else can you make sense of what's around you? Or maybe in the midst of it all, you ascribe to God your own personal limitations. And that's where uh, we are going to be at this week is that last week we talked about over the last, uh, about how God and his power uh, is, is evident and that in that we tend to, when we pray to God, think that God cannot because we cannot. We can't fathom in certain situations, maybe there's a relational mess around you or maybe you're an emotional mess and you're just looking at it's like, this is impossible. And then you ascribe to God, it's impossible. He can't because you can't. And the realities are is God has power beyond your power. God has knowledge beyond your knowledge. And today we're going to look at that God has a love that is beyond your love. And so having said that, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles uh, to page, well, it's, if you need a Bible, it'll be on page 1148 of the Bibles being handed out. But it's also found in 1 John chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 7. And we'll be in that text to start, and then we'll go to the book of Matthew after that. So to give understanding to what I mean when we try to ascribe to God a type of love that we're used to experiencing and assuming that God loves in the same manner or the same way or with the same limitations that we might love. So let me just kind of point to something that, that will help us draw into the challenges to how we ascribe to God our limited love. So in our culture today, uh, we are seeing a unique transition in the way families are parenting. So let me kind of draw back historical. How many of you here in this room heard the word no from your parents and it caused you hurt, pain, disappointment, harm, maybe even anger? How many of you heard the word no? Are you okay? <laughs> Are we all damaged from that moment? Now, see, I can't acknowledge anything. My parents are sitting in the auditorium right now. So any harm or damage I might feel, I have to keep it on the down low, but I do need counseling. 
But now the reality is, is that each of us have heard the word no from our parents and it didn't feel good. It rarely felt good. I heard the word no from my parents more times than I can count and I'm absolutely confident I didn't like it every time I heard it. Now, it may have not made me angry or mad or, or maybe, maybe disappointed, but I certainly did not like it every time I heard the word no. But there's another reality at play that not always, when we heard the word no, did we respond to it in the way that it was intended by the parents. In other words, we said yes when they said no. And we end up doing it anyway when they've said no. And I can pretty much be confident that here in this room, that most of us, when we chose to do that which we were told no, if we did it, we ended up experiencing some sort of regret or pain or consequence as a result. So when I chose to ignore the loving rebukes from my parents, I often paid the price. Now, there were times I got away with it. Just being honest, there are times when they said no, I did it anyway, and they still to this day do not know that I did it. <laughs> I don't have time to go through all that, but I definitely know there are times I got away with it. However, I still paid a price because I know that I did something that they told me no, and I was keeping it quiet or beyond. It actually hindered my freedom. There are things that over time I forgot that they had said no, and I forgot that I did it anyway, and then they would come out later, and then it's like, you did what? You did that? After we said, and then you pay it then. But, there, but it hinders your freedom, whether or not you get away with it. But what if our parents chose what is now the cultural norm? And when you say, what is now the cultural norm? The cultural norm is this. You raise your children to never disappoint them, to make sure that they never feel pain, that they never feel hurt, never feel regret from you, never feel disappointment in you. So therefore, if that's the primary motive, then you are careful to not say no, because it might hurt them, might hinder them, might cause them to be angry at you, and you lose the harmony of relationship. You see, that value has grown so much that it is now the number one value in the way we parent, the way we guide. So what if your parents, since most in the crowd said, my parents did tell me no, in such a manner that sometimes I was angry at them, disappointed, and so on. What if your parents never told you no? What harm would have been done to you? What would your character look like if your parents never told you no? It would actually be the greatest detriment in your development as a human being if you were never told no at the cost of making sure you're never upset, you're never offended, you're never hurt by your parents. Because that's become a primary value in our society, it has caused many people as they grow up to not know how to handle conflict in the workplace, not handle hearing no from the boss because the boss doesn't have that kind of motivation. Oh, I don't want you to ever feel harm, hurt, disappointment. Hmm. It's interesting. As, so, as we continue along in this, this dynamic, 
people are going to counseling more often, which is not a bad thing. But what I often hear from counselors or people that go to counseling is that, well, that counselor wasn't particularly helpful. Why? Well, they really offended me. They were hurtful. And then I'd ask, well, were they wrong? No. But I didn't like how they said it. But what were you going there for? To get help. Well, if you would do what they said, would that not help? Yes. I'm not kidding you. I've had these conversations with people when they're coming to me for help and wanting to know what counselors I would send them to. And I will say, well, I, this counselor I know does really well with that. Well, I've already been there, and that wasn't very helpful. And then I go through that line only to find out they just don't want to hear the truths about what can actually help. Because sometimes the greatest love you can show is speaking a truth that actually might be painful. It might actually hurt. It might actually disappoint you. We don't like receiving truth about ourselves. But if we're going for help, do we not want the truth that will truly unlock the hindrances we're feeling? But if you put upon it this value that I am to not ever feel pain, I'm not to ever feel hurt, I'm not to ever feel disappointed by another, if you have that as your established set of rules of engagement between you and another, then you will never find healing. I'm just being honest with you. We've ascribed now to God this idea that God's type of love will never hurt, never harm, Never hinder, never disappoint, because we believe that's what we should have here on this earth. But my understanding is that if our parents, because I'm going to guess that most of us would agree, those no's were important to our character development. If we start ascribing to God that he's not allowed to say no, that he's not allowed to redirect, that he's not allowed to hold the mirror up and say you've got a problem. If we ascribe that kind of expectation towards God, then his love will never pervade the most needed areas of your life. So today, we're going to look at that love in its purest form does not always feel good and is not motivated for self, but rather motivated for the, for the benefit of other people, even if it costs you personally. See, the best kind of love says, I'm willing to share the most pure kind of love, even if it costs me, because I know it benefits you. So now, as we looked at last week in Romans chapter 1, it said that in creation, God has revealed his eternal power and divine nature to the point where he says, no person here on this earth has excuse. You cannot claim there is no God. You cannot claim that not only is there no God, but that this God does not have an immense amount of power. It is also, there's enough evidence in creation that is visible that you can't say that God's nature, his moral fabric, is not revealed to you. So in that, no man is with excuse. So therefore, we need to look at if God is truly this God of love, 
How does his love look in contrast to how we normally experience love? Because in today's culture, not only have we gotten to the place where we are not allowed to say something that might hurt or offend, we have begun to even bless it and say, well, God is a God of love. He would never make me feel bad for the kind of love that I have for this other individual. Even if that love is clearly immoral. If it's a pure kind of love, it's got to be from God. God would never make me feel bad for feeling this kind of love. So when somebody says, but what if God's moral character says that different? And by the way, that line I'm just saying touches a myriad of ideas out in society. God is love. Of course he would affirm something if it's making you so fully fulfilled and happy. To do otherwise would to suggest that God is frowning upon that which has given you ultimate joy. I think we need to look at what God is love really means. Because if we ascribe to God our type of love that says it never hinders you, never disappoints you, never harms you, always feels good, then I think you've missed the very essence of what love actually is. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sins. Let me stop there. So, we're charged with this beginning statement. Love other people because God is love. Love other people because love comes from God. So basically saying, God is the, the very essence, the source of all love found on this earth that is in its purest form. So true love found on this earth is sourced from God. Verse 8 says, whoever does not know God or does not love does not know God because God is love. So in other words, saying you cannot claim to know God. You cannot claim that you have this relationship with God if you lack love. Because if you're in relationship with him, you're going to know love and it's going to envelop you. And so therefore it becomes you as it becomes and is him. So love is so much a part of his essence that if you are in relationship with him, you love like him. But here's the part that I want us to see when it says God is love. He is the source of all love. The essence of God is love. Let's see how that love is uh, played out. It says this in verse 9, this is how God showed his love. So this is what his love looks like. He sent his one 
and only son to come on this earth and die for a people that hated God. Which includes all of us. That while you and I were still heaped in sin, could not care less about who God is, could not have a relationship with God without being able to have God's help, God is saying, listen, before you ever loved me, before you ever sought me, before anything could ever happen to have a relationship with me, I loved you. And I paid a price for that. You see, in this text, in talking about God loves you, God is love, God wants you to love, he mentions your condition, your sin. And that sin, he never unacknowledged. He didn't ignore it. He saw it and made sure that it was covered and paid for. So in other words, God could not love you and then be able to have a relationship with you unless he dealt with the elephant in your life, your sin. He didn't just dismiss it because the truth, the loving truth of God and the purest form of his love says that sin had to be paid for. It must be accounted for. Justice must be fulfilled. So what did he do? His motive was to have relationship with you. It says that he wanted you to be experiencing his love, so he takes the one he loves most, his son, and sends him into creation to die a death he did not deserve. And might I add, the command of God to his son was to go and die a death that was easy, simple, didn't cost him much. Just stop breathing. Is that the case? No. If you've studied anything, if you know anything, even if you've not grown up in church, you're probably aware that the cross represents the most horrific death known at the time of Christ. He was nailed to the cross, alive. But before he even got to that cross, he was whipped 39 times by a whip that had all kinds of things that were sharp that would grab onto the flesh. He was beaten so brutally, it says in Scripture he was not recognizable. And by the way, that's because God loved you and I. Do you understand? Do you connect the dots that because God loved you and I, his son paid a tremendous price that was painful. Painful. Horrific. We would not be able to stand it if we were to truly see it on the screen. So the love of God did not ignore that you and I's condition, our condition is depraved. It is in a state of need. And we could not help ourselves. God did not ignore and just say, that's okay. You can't help it. I love you. And just let us stay in our state of sin. No, his love says, not only do I recognize the sin in your life, and yes, that sin needs to be paid for, I'm going to do something about it. So he did. And he paid a significant price. And it was 
painful. So nowhere in this, in this great text, it says God is love. You should love everybody because God is love. You should love everybody because he is the source of love. And God is a feel-good God. He loves you. He does. But he doesn't ignore the condition of your heart. And because he doesn't ignore the condition of his heart, and because he knows that sin needs to be covered, he, and you can't do it yourselves, he then makes the effort to make it right. That's a love I want. What if God behaved with the same kind of love you and I had? It's like, well, I don't want them to feel bad by me acknowledging and telling them how sinful they actually are. So Jesus, when you go to the earth, um, don't tell them. Don't tell them they've got a problem that they can't fix. Just ignore it. Let them feel good by all the miracles you do and the healings you do, but don't don't tell them there's a problem that separates them from us. We want them to feel good. We want them to be happy. We'll take delight in their laughter. But we're not going to tell them there's a condition that's going to kill them at the end of their life. God's not the same kind of lover you and I are. He's not going to ignore sin in your life. He's not going to just dismiss it and say, well, it's pure. It's sincere. It's kind. Even though it's sin, and just say, eh, no big deal. I still love you. We'll just let it go. No, it's sin. And he knows it, and he looks at it. And he doesn't just dismiss it. He does something about it. He lets his love identify the truth needs of our life, but then his love is willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of making sure the most important thing is reconciliation between God and man. All because he loves us. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. So loved the world that he gave his son to die for you and I so that you and I could have a relationship with God for eternity. That's a love that is so different. We're not willing to sacrifice hardship between parent and kid, let alone give up a life for the sake of somebody who doesn't even love you back. Let's look at the text of how Jesus describes the love of God. Matthew chapter 5, if you could turn there. So it's to the left in your Bibles of where we're currently at in 1 John. Matthew chapter 5, chapters 5, 6, and 7 are part of the Sermon on the Mount. The longest sermon recorded, spoken by Jesus, found in the Scriptures. And I want to let him describe the kind of love that God actually operates by. Verse 43 of chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, again Jesus is speaking, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends excuse me, rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? 
Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And yet if you greet only your own people, what are, what are you doing that is more than others? Don't even, do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus is speaking to a group of normal people, saying, you've heard it said, love those who love you back. Hate your enemy. He says, no, I, I give you a different standard. It's under a perfect standard of love. Love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. And not only that, God sends rain and sun on both the righteous and the unrighteous, the evil and the good. He shows no partiality in his care for those who are living on this earth. He loves on them. Jesus ends up modeling this so beautifully on the cross. Think about it. He's been sent to go and die for those who have hated on God, who have not had the ability to pursue God on their own. They need God's help. So what does Jesus do on the cross that day? He loves on the person who is whipping him. He is loving on the person who hits him with the rods over his head when he has a crown of thorns already there. He's loving on the person that is pulling at his beard and yanking the hair out. He is loving on the person who is holding the spike while another throws the hammer down. He is loving on the ones who said, we know God better than you. So they hurled insults at him. Jesus loved on them as well. And then the Roman centurion and the Roman soldiers who hadn't a clue about many of the prophetic messages about the Messiah, even they were mocking him and ridiculing him as claiming to be some sort of king. Yet Jesus loved them. In fact, Jesus said while on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're actually beating the one who is there to love on them. They are ridiculing the one who is in that very moment loving on them. The earth was missing the fact that the greatest act of love was for somebody to die a death that was not due him so they could become the perfect sacrifice to cover sins once and for all. But they didn't get it. They were still hating on him, but he never stopped loving on them. You see, God showed his love to both the righteous and the unrighteous, the evil and the good. He died for them and sacrificed for them before they ever showed any intent of love back towards him. That's the kind of love that he displays, that is not conditional by the, beha the behavior towards him, but rather it's purely based on his sincere, pure love for others. One page over, Matthew chapter 7, another statement within this long sermon that Jesus says, he says in verse 7 of chapter 7, it says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. But which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if it asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, corrupt, not of God, depraved, if though you are even being evil, know how to give a good gift to your children, how much more would your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? You see, God's kind of love is informed. He knows the future. He knows the present. And he knows the present more intimately than even the individual knows themselves. Yet he gives generously. And his capacity to love is beyond you and I because he takes that power that he has. He takes that knowledge that he has. And he takes that presence that he has that is all-encompassing. And he's able to to give you good gifts because he knows what is best for you. His love uses the full aspects of himself, his power, his knowledge, yes, his presence, to give you what is best. We can give well, even though we're finite, simple, not complete, we can give fairly well, but not like God can give. Because God knows your needs to a level that even you do not. And he uses that capacity. What if you and I were truly willing to live the kind of love that God lived? Where he loves the one who hates on him. He loves on the one who persecutes him whether or not they ever become a righteous person following after him? What if our love reflected that I am willing to love even if I'm not going to receive love back? I mean, look what it said in 5. It says, you greet those who only will greet you back. You love on those and spend time with those who only spend time with you back. Good grief, even the tax collectors. That's what Jesus said. He didn't say good grief, but it says good grief to me. Good grief, even the tax collectors do that. They love on the ones that will love them back. But there is a love to God that is way beyond that that says, I love on those even if you will not love me back. So what do I learn from all of this? (laughs) That God will love you. God will love you even at your worst. God will love you even at your worst. Maybe some of these relational situations that you've faced in your life, maybe some of the emotional challenges you've experienced in your life, you've gotten to the place where you just basically had it out with God and you held your fist up and said, I'm angry at you. Maybe even said, I am done with God, I'm done with church, and I'm moving on. Reality is, it doesn't matter what you say. God's still going to love you. He's going to love you at your worst. He's going to love you at your worst. God's love also will not cut corners to avoid pain on your behalf. He's going to love you. And if what needs to happen in your life for you to find healing requires saying something that is difficult or doing something that is difficult in order for you to get to the truth of the situation, he's going to do it. 
God's love, yes, he will love you even at your worst, but he will not cut corners. Truth is important to him. He will never violate it. That's what makes it so difficult sometimes in pastoral ministry is that we are invited into intervention of marriages or relationships or situations in people's lives and then somehow by the end of it all, they're now angry at us because often they don't want to receive the truth of what actually will help them. And you know what? I believe that's a small snippet of what God experiences He goes to work in somebody's life only to find that they get angry at him. They had said, God help me, God help me, so all right, I'll help you. But as soon as it holds up a mirror to help you, we become angry or offended by God. So God loves you at your worst. God will not cut the corners to avoid pain. Number three, God's love is driven to reconcile you to him, not to fulfill the fleeting pursuit of happiness. God is not up there intervening in our lives with the goal, I want you to be happy. That just would be so shallow. That's not God's goal. His goal is to reconcile you to him. And when you have a reconciled relationship with him, then you will know life that is truly fulfilling. And yes, happiness can happen in that, but it does not mean it's easy. So God's love is driven to reconcile you to him. That's what he's aiming at. When he operates in your life, he is bringing you into relationship with him. He is helping you discover life as God intends, not just so that you can have a smile for five minutes or be appeased for today. And as a result... Because God will love you even when you're at your worst. Because God won't cut corners. He will make sure that you know the truth and that you can then know the things to work on that actually will help you. And that because God's love is about making sure that you have a relationship with him because if you have a relationship with him, he knows your life will become all that you had ever hoped for. Because that is the love that God has, this fourth one is so important to hear and to cement, and that is God's love is worthy of your trust. Not all love that is so-called love on this earth is trustworthy, but God's love is worthy of your trust because it's not self-seeking for him. He is making sure that you are the beneficiary of his love and he wants you to succeed and thrive. And therefore, anything that could hinder that, even if it's you yourself and your own motivations, he will cut through it because he knows what you need. And I say, thank you, God. Because who wants to go through life with a God that just decides, you know what? It's probably easier if I just make you happy today at the cost of our character being spoiled for tomorrow. So do not ascribe to God the love of culture, which is so afraid to speak truth, which is so afraid of pain, which is so afraid of hindrance or offense, 
at the cost of the problem being right there and not being allowed to speak to it. Let's let the true character of God that said, you know what? Even when we were all a mess and we could not help ourselves, he died for you and I. He made sure that our sin was not going to keep us from a relationship from him. So therefore, he paid the ultimate price, which was great pain. He doesn't ignore our sin. He doesn't ignore our flaws. But he also knows we can't help ourselves. <laughs> so his love said, I got to make it happen. And I'm thankful that God did through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so fortunate that you are a God who has shown the greatest amount of love. Father, I am I, I'm appalled. I can't fathom loving something so much that you would give up that which is most precious to you, your son, to go and do what Jesus did. So to you as the Father and Jesus to you as the Son, we are the objects of your love and great sacrifice. A sacrifice that basically was built on truth. The truth of our condition, the truth of your heart, and reconciling the two. Thank you for not cutting corners so that we can receive the full pleasure of your presence, your love, and the hope for eternity. Because sin was not ignored, and it wasn't partially paid for, it was eradicated. So we say thank you for that payment and for your love being superior to ours. So now reveal yourself to all of our hearts afresh and anew where we can worship you and the love that you have for us, that we can respond in that worship with gratefulness. And if there are those here in this room that have never tasted that love, that they will surrender to you and come into relationship with you, knowing that there is a loving God on the other side. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So in Romans chapter 5, it says this, You see, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, Christ died for you as the ungodly one. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for you, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That is the message of Jesus Christ. You didn't do anything to be able to warrant his love. His love was that extravagant, given back towards you. So if you've never experienced the love of God that he has for you, 
we invite you to give yourself over to him and experience the love of Christ. We'll have people underneath the cross to my right, your left, that would be glad to pray with you, talk with you. I'll be up front and available if, if you wish. We want you to know the love of Christ. If you've known Jesus Christ for a long time, appreciate with gratefulness his love for you. Do not lose the love you experienced at first when you realize there was this great God who loves you even when you were wretched. That's the limitlessness of the love of Christ. In spite of the truth he knew, he didn't forsake it. He did something about it. So we walk in that. So go out these doors knowing and appreciating the love of God to his glory so that we can love on those who would never guess to receive love from you. Amen. You're dismissed.